Well, good afternoon, and thank you so much for coming out and joining us. Thank you to the worship team for uh, starting off our service so beautifully. Living this far out west, I imagine that everybody here at one time or another has seen a Native American totem pole. Uh, Coastal Pacific natives use totem poles to depict sacred beings and family legend and animals and historical events. I think we have a few pictures up here. And it's widely understood that the higher up on the totem pole that you are, the better. The more honor should be given to the thing, the symbol that's the highest up towards the top. People use the analogy of like their place on the totem pole to describe their social level within an organization. Maybe your place on the totem pole is used to represent how popular you are at school, your place in a company or on a team, or just about any other social situation that you can think of. And anytime you hear somebody say, I feel like the low man on the totem pole, like that's, that's always a bad thing. Nobody ever wants to be down at the bottom. When you're in grade school, you can move up the totem pole with one perfectly executed birthday party, right? Get everyone in your class wanting to get invited to your party. When you're in high school, you can move up the totem pole by being good at sports or talented at music or best of all, just having your own car. In adulthood, we secretly justify our significance to others based on finances or education or our social standing in the community. And I think this image of a totem pole provides an interesting way for us to look at a pretty significant problem that each one of us deals with. And the problem is this. On one hand, we all want to climb up the totem pole. We all want to be better and more accomplished and more recognized at various things in our life. That's a good thing. But on the other hand, and here's the problem, The higher we get up on the totem pole, the more we usually look down on those who are beneath us. If you think about it, isn't this one of the main problems with this cultural moment that we're in right now? The more a person gets passionate about politics, the more contempt they get for those with opposing viewpoints. The more of an expert we become in a particular career field, the less patience we have for a novice, lesser informed opinion. The more woke somebody gets, you guys know what that means, the more woke somebody gets, the more they accuse others of being racist or homophobic or whatever it is that they like to be accusatory of. And how about this? Unfortunately, the longer most people go to church, the more difficult it becomes for us to be compassionate towards messy spiritually apathetic people. The higher up we get on the totem pole, the easier it is to look down and judge those who are still beneath us. And so my question for us this morning, this afternoon, is how do we grow spiritually and emotionally and socially? Like how do we climb up the totem pole, which everybody should want to do, without looking down and diminishing and judging those that we surpass? In today's Bible story, Jesus addresses this exact problem. It's a brilliant story with an incredibly dynamic solution to the problem. So if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, 
And our outline this afternoon as we move through will be as follows. Number one, I'd like to talk about the context and the main idea and the tone of this story that Jesus is telling us. Those will all help us identify his meaning. Number two, let's talk about the common wrong responses that we have to this story. Jesus was so perceptive. Jesus was so wise that he told a story about things that we're still getting wrong 2,000 years later. And let's wrap up in section three with the solution, the corrective, and what Jesus is teaching us through this story about how we can solve this dilemma that we often still struggle with. All right, section one. What's the context of this story? You know, sometimes we take Jesus' parables and they're just in a vacuum. They're just floating out there and we think that they're all the same. But, um, you know, most of them were given with a specific problem, with a specific context. And this is absolutely one of those. Jesus tells us right at the beginning of the story that this is a lesson specifically for those whose pursuit of goodness is causing them to despise others. This story is for the exact problem that we're talking about here in the introduction. When you try to climb the totem pole, when you try to get better at something, and you unwantingly find yourself judging, condemning, or diminishing somebody else below you, that is what this story was written for. Jesus says in Luke 18, verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. In other words, that's Luke explaining why Jesus is giving us this story. Now, to the original audience, those that this was being written to, those whose pursuit of goodness was causing them to despise others, uh, the person in the story who's guilty of that is a Pharisee, somebody who was a professional religious person living their life as an example to others, trying to teach and correct others as to what they were getting right and wrong about the Bible. And what the, the Pharisee in this story that Jesus is telling us gets wrong is that he's actually exceeding what the Bible is telling people to do. As you look there in verse 12, he's patting himself on the back for fasting, uh, and he's congratulating himself for tithing, for giving a percentage of his money every month to the church. And uh, what I should point out here for the sake of clarity is that in all the Old Testament, we're only commanded to fast once. Old Testament people are only commanded to fast one day on the Day of Atonement, which is a specific religious uh, holiday and festival in the Old Testament times. There's other times it talks about the benefits of fasting, uh, but God's people are only commanded to do it in the Old Testament one time. Uh, and here the guy's saying that he does it every week. Uh, there's two places in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law, where God's people uh, are, are told to tithe or to give extra of their earnings to poor people. Um, but it's only to farmers. And it's this beautiful image. They're told not to harvest the edges of their field so that there would still be crops and fruits and vegetables for poor sojourners who were coming through uh, to gather and to eat. But uh, that's only told to farmers. And here this guy's saying, but I do it all the time. And so uh, the character in this story is actually thinking that he's better than others, not merely for obeying, the Old Testament, but for doing even more than is being asked. And I point that out because here in the year 2020, very few of us think that we're better than other people because of our obedience to the Old Testament, right? Very few of us here think that we're better than others because we're still obeying a bunch of stuff from the Old Testament. But 
if we're honest, there's other ways that we're still making this mistake. There's still ways that our pursuit of goodness causes us to look down on others. Maybe once or twice you've caught yourself with a thought like this, thank you, God, that I'm not like that neighbor who never goes to church. Maybe uh, there's a, a classmate of your uh, child who's just going through a kind of a messy stage right now, and you've thought to yourself, thank you, God, that I'm not like those parents that have no control over their kids. Maybe you've been driving through town and you've seen somebody a little bit lower down the uh, economic ladder and you've thought to yourself really quickly, thank you, God, that I'm a contributor in this community and not just a taker like those people. The list goes on and on. Uh, today's story is in a specific context and it's a lesson for those whose pursuit of goodness causes them to look down on others. I'm thankful that Jesus puts this story in the Bible uh, because it's a problem that I have and it's something that I'm personally searching for a solution to. That points us towards the main idea of this story. What's the main idea of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? We could probably all phrase it a little bit differently, but I would give the main idea like this. Pursuit of goodness should humble us and increase our gratefulness for God's mercy, not create a sense of superiority. Let me say that again. Think about all the good things that you do. Think about all the ways that you try to bless other people. Think about all the ways that you just try to be a good person. The main idea of this parable is that the pursuit of goodness should humble us and increase our gratefulness for God's mercy, not create a sense of superiority within us. Listen to uh, kind of the punchline of the story that Jesus gives here in verse 14. He's talking about uh, the tax collector, and he says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified or in the right standing before God. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The tax collector is praised by Jesus for getting it right. His attempt to be good has humbled him and reminded him of how much he really needs God. Uh, this is actually a, a huge theme throughout the New Testament because when you start reading your Bible, you know, the first half, the first, uh, first three-fifths are this Old Testament series of rules and regulations. It's the law, and it's easy to feel like, wow, how could anybody measure up to all those rules? But trying to follow all those rules shouldn't ever make us feel superior to those who don't do it as well or don't even make an effort. In other words, what Jesus is telling us through this story is that all the rules in the Bible are not supposed to make us superior to others. They're supposed to make us humble. They're supposed to make us realize how often we get it wrong. And then that, that humility should make us grateful for the good and merciful things that God has done in our life. Just to kind of point out that this is a theme that runs all throughout the New Testament. In Romans 5, 20 to 21, it's talking about this very thing, and it says, the law was brought in so that trespass and sin would increase, and where sin increased, grace would increase all the more, so that just as sin reigns in death, so also grace may reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One, one other clear place that it talks about this is uh, in Galatians 3.24. Listen to how it just says it in slightly different words. 
So the law was our teacher until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer needing that teacher. In other words, the things that God asks of us throughout the Bible aren't supposed to make us feel like we're higher up the totem pole than other people. They're supposed to make us realize how often we get those things wrong, how often we're disobedient, and how much we need God's mercy. So that's kind of the main idea of the story that Jesus is telling today. And I always think it's really important to come up with the tone of uh, what that writer of the Bible is going for. What's something that we could compare it to that might help us understand it a little bit better? Uh, if you guys are under the age of 30, you're probably familiar with the term diss track, okay? A diss track is something that a rapper writes when he's just specifically wants to criticize somebody uh, that, that he or she hates. Uh, there's other examples in music as well of when somebody is trying to create a song or a piece of art with the specific intent of correcting some sort of slight or grievance that they have with somebody else. Probably the most famous example of this is uh, one of my favorite singers and songwriters, Neil Young. He wrote a song in 1970 called Southern Man. You probably heard it on classic rock radio. And uh, he wrote another song two years later called Alabama. And in both of those songs, he was being very critical of people that lived in the South. He was telling all of them that there's a lot of things that you're getting wrong. I'm rebuking you. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, there was another band from the South that wanted to avenge that slight. They're called Leonard Skinner. And Leonard Skinner wrote a song called Sweet Home Alabama in response to those two songs by Neil Young. And the second verse goes like this. It does not lack for subtlety. Well, I heard Mr. Young sing about her. Well, I heard old Neil put her down. Well, I hope Neil Young will remember a southern man don't need him around anyhow. And now, all throughout the country, I mean, even down south at Alabama football games, the whole stadium of students stands up and sings that song. They probably have never even heard of Neil Young, but the slight has been avenged, right? Well, I share that because Jesus wrote this story to avenge a slight. In Luke 13, 10 to 17, the Pharisees criticized Jesus for trying to heal somebody on the Sabbath. The same thing happens again in Luke 14, 1 to 6. They're so high up the totem pole in their own understanding that when Jesus is not exceeding the Old Testament laws like they are, when he's actually doing physical activity on a, on a Sabbath day, they criticize him for that. They're looking down the totem pole at Jesus. In Luke 15, 1 to 2, the Pharisees are angry and criticizing Jesus because he has the audacity to eat and fellowship and travel with dirty, messy sinners. So Jesus thinks up this story. It's, he's avenging a slight. He's writing it to make the Pharisees look bad. He's, he's using a hypothetical example, but he's trying to show them how off they are, and he's trying to offer a corrective to this mistake that they're making. Let's move on here to section two and let's talk about three mistakes that we often still make from this parable of the Pharisee 
and the tax collector. I, I know you guys are familiar with it from uh, when it was read by the worship team. This Pharisee is standing up in church and he's saying, God, thankful, thank, thank goodness I'm not as bad as these other people. And he lists off a couple things that would have been thought of as you know, very bad adultery, um, extortion. And he actually singles out this, uh, this poor tax collector. Thank God I'm not as bad as him. He's looking down the totem pole at people that aren't as enlightened and spiritual as he is. Well, we often still make the mistake of the Pharisee. I often still make the mistake of the Pharisee. Even though this story has been in circulation for over 2,000 years, even though we all should know better not to look down the totem pole at other people, um, we still make the mistake of the Pharisee. I want you guys to just take a moment privately and ask God, if you dare, to remind you of who you have viewed as beneath you in just this last week. Maybe it was someone you drove past on the road. Maybe it was someone in front of you in line at the grocery store. Maybe it was a clerk at a store that was disrespectful. Maybe it was an internet poster that you interacted with on social media who was offering a dissenting opinion or being critical. I just want to point out that we still make the mistake of the Pharisee as we strive to represent God and we strive to be good, constructive, spiritual people. It's so easy to still make that same mistake and look down at others. Let's move on here to point B, because we also, ironically, have disgust for the Pharisee, right? As much as we hate that that person would stand up and say, oh, I'm so glad I'm better than those other people, we also have, even though we do that, even though we're guilty of that, we as a culture have a collective disgust for people who are accusatory uh, and um, out of step with the current thought. Uh, social media right now, if 20 years from now somebody was like, Dad, what was it like in 2020? I would say... The world in 2020 shared a desire to come together and shame and accuse others. And we would get together on our phones and we would get together on our laptop and we would find an example of somebody who was a little bit further down the totem pole and said something that was just a little bit out of step with how everybody else was thinking and then we would all come together and shame them over and over again. Um, and I hope you guys can see the irony in that. For example, and this is in no means a defense of racism, we need to call out racism as God's people and stand against it. But if you think about what it is that we hate so much about racism, it's because a racist is judging others superficially and without knowing them. That's the awful thing about racism. But what do we do when we all collectively point to somebody that we've never met and call them a racist? We're judging them superficially and without knowing them. Uh, we love to condemn the condemners without realizing that we're doing the very thing that we're pointing out. And how about this? Another mistake that we make from this story is that we often praise the tax collector for the wrong thing. And I've made this conclusion before as well. You've got these two characters, and the first one is um, patting himself on the back for all the things in the Bible that he obeys. And like that's really distasteful. We're all a little bit annoyed at somebody who would act that way, just full of so much self-righteousness. And then the other character doesn't really seem to be trying uh, to follow all the rules of the Old Testament. And so it's easy to kind of make the conclusion that it's just better to be that second guy. It's better to be the tax collector. It's better to just not strive for righteousness at all. 
But of course, the thing that Jesus is praising the tax collector for is not that he's not trying to follow the Bible at all. It's just that as the tax collector tries, he realizes how much he falls short. He gets down on his knees and he says, God, forgive me. God, have mercy on me. So let's remember that we're uh, praising and acknowledging the tax collector for the right thing. Let me wrap it up with this. I just have one more thing that I want to uh, talk about. And that's the corrective or the solution or the exclamation point that Jesus is offering us in this story of how we can forever think about this situation differently and no longer play that game where we climb up the totem pole looking down at everybody that's beneath us. And I would say it like this. This story is really meant to teach us to be free from condemnation towards other people. This story is really trying to give us a joy of how we are like that tax collector. Because the tax collector realizes that he doesn't have to obey the law perfectly to earn God's favor. He just has to be humble and understand that God is the one who does the forgiving and the restoration. Listen to uh, how Paul says it in Ephesians 2, 8-9. I think this is probably... The Bible's best summary of what it is that this story is trying to teach us. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not by works or obeying the law so nobody can boast. In other words, we're supposed to feel joy that we don't have to be like the Pharisee. We get to be like the tax collector. We get to come to God, uh, ask for forgiveness, and have our goodness come through what Jesus Christ has done for us, not on our ability to be law followers or rule followers. And let me try to kind of bring this home with uh, one final illustration. Why don't you guys uh, do some imagining with me? Imagine this winter, you go up to one of the resorts, and there at a table right by the bar are three of your heroes, three songwriting legends. Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys, James Taylor, and Paul Simon. These guys have written over 50 top 20 Billboard hits. I mean, these are just the best songwriters our country has produced. And they're just sitting there having a nice afternoon on the slopes. And you go up to their table and you say, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm also a songwriter. And uh, when I was in high school, I was in this band with some buddies. We practiced out in our garage. And junior year, I had this nasty breakup, and I wrote this song. And well, do you guys want me to play it for you? (laughs) They'd probably humor you, right, as they called for security or something like that. They'd probably be nice about it. But eventually, eventually, someone would point out that you're just not recognizing the great divide between their talent and their accomplishments and their cultural significance and yours. Because they're the best of the best and you're just someone who wrote a hypothetical song in high school, right? Um, There's no way you'd ever be accepted as a peer when it comes to their talent and their accomplishments and everything that they've done uh, for cultural significance. Let me contrast that with another example. Uh, There is a uh, a writer named Oliver Sacks, and he's actually a professor of neurology and psychology at Columbia University Medical Center. 
And uh, he wrote this incredible book called Musicophilia. And it's about all these neurologically weird things that he accomplished in his 50-year career uh, as a psychologist. And he'd make notes and he wrote this book about just the weird things that can happen musically to people that he had seen in his career practice. And this is a really unusual example from the book. I mean, this is a true story. This has all been vetted and studied further. There was this guy named Tony Sicoria. He was 42 years old. He had been an athlete. He, he had been a college football player. Uh, he was actually went to medical school, and he was a doctor in upstate New York. But the interesting part about this story is he had never been interested in music in his whole life, like never. He was 42 years old, and he was using a payphone, and he got struck by lightning. He recovered fully with no cardia, uh, cardiac or neurological damage. But ever from that point on, he started hearing classical music in his head. Never had had lessons before, had never even been interested in classical music. He quickly got a piano in his home, and when he wasn't at work, he was just in front of that piano, uh, playing compulsively day and night. Very, very quickly, he became a concert-level pianist because of this bizarre fluke that had happened in his brain. So my question for you is this. If you went up to that guy and asked him what it was like to be an excellent piano player, do you think he'd be dismissive? Do you think he'd, be, he'd talk about you know, all the practice time? Or do you think he'd be like, yeah, it's pretty cool. I got struck by lightning. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden I could play Mozart. It was a fluke. It was a gift. And you would look at that gift very differently than one like those previous three songwriters that had honed and developed that gift over a lifetime of significant work and accomplishment. What Jesus is really telling us in today's story is that your righteousness before God, the fact that God loves you, the fact that you're adopted in his family, the fact that you represent him to a watching world, it's not like those first songwriters. It's not something that you've worked for and accomplished over 50 years of doing things the right way. It's like that guy that got hit by lightning and could suddenly play Beethoven. It's a fluke. It's a gift. And shouldn't that change the way that we look up and down the totem pole if that's where our righteousness and good standing before God comes from? I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and uh, close with a final song. And as they do, let me just kind of share today's conclusion and big idea. I hope this sticks in your mind and your heart like it's been going through mine all week. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector is meant for us to humbly embrace that Christ's death and resurrection is the source of our goodness and renewal. And because Christ's death and resurrection is the source of our goodness and our righteousness, uh, our capacity to love people without condemnation should flourish. We can look up and down that totem pole without jealousy and without judgment because we're only on there in the first place because of what Jesus Christ has done and offered us.